So in my talk last week, I was invited to revisit the core teachings of the Buddha to start exploring or re-exploring for many of you this path of transformation that the Buddha laid out in the Noble Eightfold Path, which really is the heart, the core of everything that he taught. And it's what all of us here are following to some extent, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. And I think most of you were here last time, but just uh, to give a little bit of context, a very quick overview, I located the Noble Eightfold Path in the context of the Four Noble Truths. And I mentioned how the Buddha structured his teaching in terms of a medical model that was being developed at that time in India. So the first noble truth identifies the disease or the dis-ease that we're suffering from, namely dukkha, which can be translated as stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness, as well as suffering itself. Then the second noble truth identifies the cause of the dis-ease as craving, or tanha. And this includes all the various ways that we get caught up in struggling with experience. So tanha literally means thirsting or going after experience, clinging to it. But it also includes resisting it. And perhaps a more subtle form of clinging, the clinging of identification. All the ways that we take our experience personally make it me, mine, who I am. And then the third noble truth brings us the good news that this dis-ease is curable. It is possible to experience relief from suffering by letting go of the thirsting, the craving, the clinging, and the identifying. And as I said last week, I'm confident that all of us here have had at least some moments of this relief whenever the heart and mind temporarily let go. And over time, these moments of release start to become more and more the default setting of the mind until eventually it's possible to experience the lasting peace of Nibbana awakening. And Nibbana being defined as the heart-mind that is completely free from greed, from hatred, from delusion. So that's a very simple snapshot of where this path is leading. And as I'm sure all of you know, to actually put it into practice is not so easy. So the Buddha gave us the fourth noble truth, which is the prescription, the prescription of how we cure ourselves of the dis-ease of dukkha. And this prescription is the Noble Eightfold Path. So last week I gave you an overview of this path and I mentioned how the eight factors are grouped into three sets that together cover every aspect of our lives. And I suggested that it can be useful from time to time to do a kind of a practice review in terms of these three groups just to see if we are developing all of them equally together so that we're getting the most benefit from our practice. So here's a little bit of a pop quiz just to see how much you remember from last week. 
So anybody remember what the first of these three groupings is? Anyone willing to just call out? You need to unmute Penny. I'm, at this point, I'm on the big picture of the three groupings of the H. So what's the first set of three of the three? Uh, no, that's the second. Wisdom. Thank you, whoever said wisdom. That's the first set. And what does the wisdom factor include? There are two of them. Yes, wise view and wise intention or wise thought. Brilliant. Thank you. So the second grouping, Jonathan, you named it as the ethics group or SELA. So what are the three factors that are in covered in the ethics group? Mm -hmm. Yes, right speech. Right action. Right livelihood. Thank you. So that leaves the third group, which is someone else. Yeah, samadhi, the usual translation. In this context, um, we can translate it as the meditative group. So which three factors does this one include? Yep, that's one. There's one before that. Actually, two before that. Right, right or wise, samadhi is the last one. Yes, wise effort, and then... Thank you, yes. So wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise samadhi are the three meditatives. So tonight, I'd like to circle back to the beginning of that list and look at the wisdom factors of right view and right intention in just a bit more detail. Because at first it might seem strange that these wisdom parts of the path are at the beginning. It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Because how do you even get on the path in the first place unless you already have some bit of wisdom? The wisdom to realize that maybe there's a better way of living our lives. And I want to highlight, as I said last week, that every one of us here already has quite some degree of wisdom, perhaps more than we might ordinarily name to ourselves. And I wanted to highlight that because I'm guessing that many of us shy away from thinking of ourselves as wise in quotation marks. And that might be partly because in English the word wisdom can sound lofty, remote, cerebral. And one of the challenges of translating the Pali word panya as wisdom is that in English wisdom is a noun. So it can sound like a fixed thing that we have to get. And at least for me, that's what I used to think wisdom meant. It was about putting a lot of facts in my brain and then perhaps trying to arrange them in complicated ideas. 
And then I heard this statement in the Buddha's teaching somewhere, there is wisdom, sorry, there is knowledge, and then there's understanding. And it's the understanding that is the wisdom piece that the Buddha is pointing to. So when I first heard how in the Buddha's teachings, wisdom is something that can be cultivated, it felt very empowering. Until then, I'd thought that wisdom was something you were just born with or you weren't. Some people were naturally wise and others weren't. So to understand that wisdom is something we can actually develop, that we can train in, that was quite inspiring. So in Pali, the literal translation of the word panya is to know correctly. So here it's a verb, not a noun. And to me, at least, trying to know correctly sounds a bit more accessible than trying to be wise. So this whole process starts with right or wise view. Because without it, we wouldn't get started on the journey in the first place. But then as we go along, that wisdom gets more and more developed, more and more refined. And it also becomes the fruit or the result of following this path. So rather than thinking of the path as a straight line, it's more of a spiral, circling around, spiraling upwards, all of the path factors supporting, reinforcing each other in this upward movement towards freedom. So wisdom is the beginning of the journey and it's also the end result of it. And everything we're doing here is aimed at developing clear seeing insight so that we can live with greater ease and peace and freedom. So right or wise view is the crucial first stage of this whole process. And this is how one professor of Buddhist studies, uh, Krishnan Venkatesh, defines it. He says the phrase right view is a translation of the Pali Samaditi. And here, right view does not mean that there's only one right way to look at things. Sama is a rich word that translates as something like completed, perfected, or fulfilled. And he makes the point it's similar to the word sama in Latin, as in the word consummate. So sama is consummate and ditti encompasses one's view or one's vision the perspective that we take on something as well as the way we perceive and he says ditti in this context is similar to the english word theory which comes from a greek word theor meaning to behold so our theory of life is our ditti the perspective from which we make sense of things the view that guides our daily decisions and judgments. And he makes a point that we all have ditties, views, even though most of us are not fully conscious of them until some situation prompts us to express them or perhaps our views get challenged. Often our views are unexamined opinions or assumptions that we've inherited from other people or from our culture. After we become aware of these views, we can choose to hold them as true or to modify or to reject them. If the views we cling to are confused or misguided, 
they will surely undermine all aspects of our practice. So part of right view is becoming clear about what views we're already holding and where necessary, reshaping them, aligning them in ways that are going to lead to benefit. And in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path, the Buddha was quite specific about what he meant by right or wise view. And there are a few different aspects of it. One includes understanding the core teachings, such as the Four Noble Truths. So again, we see this circularity. And I gave an overview of the Four Noble Truths last week. So tonight, I want to take a bit more time on another key aspect of right view, which is the understanding of karma, or karma in Sanskrit, the universal law of cause and effect or the understanding that whatever we do intentionally, whether good or bad, will come back to us at some stage as our inheritance. So whatever our life situation is now, is affected, is the result of some of the intentional acts that we've done in the past. And whatever our life situation will be in the future, will be shaped by what we're doing now. So right now, moment by moment, we're shaping our future by how we train our hearts and minds. Whether we're conscious of this or not, this process is happening. So it makes sense to pay attention to what we're doing and especially to pay attention to our minds. Because with each thought and emotion, we're strengthening neuronal patterns in the mind. Neuronal patterns or pathways that lead to either beneficial or unbeneficial speech and action, or to beneficial speech and action. So some of you are probably familiar with the first two verses of the Dhammapada that use the metaphor of the ox pulling a wagon to show how inevitably thought, all forms of mental activity, pull us towards or away from happiness. So here are their lines. This is a translation by Gil Fronsdor. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows, as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows, like a never-departing shadow. So on one level, it's pretty straightforward. If we want to orient our lives away from suffering and towards happiness, right mindfulness helps us see clearly the motivations in our hearts and minds. And right view helps us to understand whether what we're doing is leading towards harm or towards benefit. So karma is yet another of the Buddha's teachings that might appear to be deceptively simple, but in other ways is actually 
profound and complex. So it literally means action, action with intention. And in the Buddha's teachings, it's the motivation, the quality of the heart-mind beneath the action that determines whether it leads to good or bad karma. So the scholar monk Bhikkhu Bodhi says, unwholesome karma is action that is morally blameworthy, detrimental to spiritual development, conducive to suffering for oneself and others. Wholesome karma, on the other hand, is action that is morally commendable, helpful to spiritual growth, and productive of benefit for oneself and others. And the Buddha highlights ten particular courses of wholesome and unwholesome action. And of the unwholesome, fairly obvious, the first one is destroying life. The second is taking what is not given. The third is wrong conduct in regard to sense pleasures. The fourth is false speech. So you might recognize those as the first four of the five ethical precepts. The fifth is slanderous speech. The sixth is harsh speech. The seventh is idle chatter. The eighth is covetousness. The ninth is ill will. And the tenth is wrong view. So again we circle around. And it's interesting to note that four of those ten are to do with speech. So we'll be coming back to speech perhaps in a later talk because right or wise speech is also a path factor of its own, which perhaps give an indication of just how important the Buddha saw this aspect of our lives. So before we go any further, I just want to acknowledge that this whole terrain of karma can bring up quite strong discomfort for some people. Maybe partly because as... Asian traditions have become more popular in the West. In some ways, they've become a bit distorted, a bit simplistic, perhaps not accurate. So one distortion is that the law of karma is sometimes presented very simplistically in books and movies, and sometimes it's presented almost as a kind of fatalism. Oh, well, it's just their karma. And there's a sort of disconnection there. Other times it's presented as a kind of superstition. Or watch out, you're making bad karma. But in actuality, karma is incredibly complex because it doesn't operate along just one single, nice, tidy, linear strand of cause and effect. So we can't point to a single action and its result it's more of a multiple feedback loop. So Gil Fransdell uses an image, an analogy of throwing a pebble into a pond. With the first pebble, if we drop that in, we can very clearly see there's a relationship between that particular stone and the ripples that spread out. But if we throw in another pebble, the ripples from the second interact with the ripples from the first and the more pebbles we throw, the more complex those patterns of interaction become until the whole surface of the pond is ruffled and it's impossible to say which pebble created which ripple. 
But even that analogy is a simplification because a pebble is just a pebble. But when it comes to our actions, as I think you all know, karma accumulates based on the motivation behind the action. And that's where it gets complicated because most of us have mixed motivations most of the time. I think, maybe I should just speak for myself, if we really look, it's not often that we're acting from a totally pure motivation. Anything that we think or say or do is likely to be done with a range of different intentions. And so it in, it is um, accumulating different types of karma, some good, some bad, some neutral. There's one other point in relation to all this, that in the context of the early Buddhist teachings, not everything in the universe happens due to karma. And this is different from some of the developments in the later Buddhist traditions. But in the early Pali canon, it was understood that there are other natural laws at work in addition to karma. And these include things like seasonal laws, so the physical order of winds and rain and so on, weather, karmic laws, so things like tides and gravity and electrical forces. So there are many different systems that are overlapping in addition to karma, and we can't definitively say, for example, a tsunami in Thailand. That's not necessarily due to karma. There are many other factors at play there. Nevertheless, if we look at the bigger picture of our lives, we can usually see that to the extent that we have managed to refine our ethical behavior in the world, to that extent we are living with less suffering and with more ease, more happiness, more peace. So again, from time to time, you might take a look at the overall arc of your practice. And if it doesn't seem to be leading in that direction, you might need to take a closer look at right or wise view and see whether the understanding of karma needs to be refined and your commitment to ethical conduct to be strengthened. So there's one other aspect of karma just to briefly name now and that's the tendency often to think of it, to hear it mostly in terms of bad karma. So it unconsciously becomes associated with blame, with shame, with punishment, maybe even conflated with sin. And again, this is probably due to the mind's inherent negativity bias, where we tend to put much more emphasis on things that are painful and potentially threatening than on things that are pleasant or beneficial. So in exploring this role of karma in your own practice, I really encourage you to keep in mind all the positive ways that you're already shaping your lives rather than fixating on any mistakes you've made or any harm you've caused, supposed character flaws and so on. Not to negate or deny them, but also to see that karma c covers that whole spectrum. And paying attention to the positive can actually be quite freeing because it gives us the agency to change direction, to change our motivations. 
So whatever we have done in the past is not a fixed and static burden to be carried for the rest of our lives. And this is because of yet another subtlety of karma, that how we experience the results of our actions depends on the bigger picture of what else we've done in our lives. So again, the Buddha used an analogy and he said, suppose that a man were to drop a salt crystal into a small amount of water in a cup. What do you think? Would the water in the cup become salty because of that salt crystal and unfit to drink? And the monastics reply, yes, Lord. And then he says, now suppose that a man were to drop a salt crystal into the river Ganges. What do you think? Would the water in the river Ganges become salty because of the salt crystal and unfit to drink? No, Lord. So this is pointing to that although the results of our past karma are inescapable, how we experience them varies hugely depending on how we're living our lives now. So again, if we want to experience the benefits that all the Buddha's teachings promise us, it's not enough to read books and listen to talks and fantasize about how wonderful it might be when we finally get enlightened. We have to actually do the practices that the Buddha taught and develop all of these factors of the Eightfold Path so that we can consciously shape our hearts and minds. So the English monk Ajahn Suchito sometimes talks about the practice as a process of what he calls crafting the heart. He uses the analogy of a craftsperson getting to know their material. And I, I like that image of whether it's working with wood or clay or metal or glass or paper. In the same way, we're getting to know the raw material of our hearts and minds. Just like a craftsperson, we sensitize ourselves to what's actually going on in there. And we meet that experience, as we were doing in the meditation earlier, with patience, with kindness, with interest, so that we can gently work with the heart and mind to refine it to refine it in a ways that allow its natural strength and beauty to come forth. So the American monk Bhikkhu Bodhi says that he, he describes the emphasis that the Buddha placed on this initial factor of right view. And he says the Buddha himself says that he sees no single factor so responsible for the arising of unwholesome states of mind as wrong view, and no factor so helpful for the arising of wholesome states of mind as right view. And again, he says, there is no single factor so responsible for the suffering of living beings as wrong view, and no factor so potent in promoting the good of living beings as right view. So there's a strong connection between right view and skillful states of mind that lead to skillful actions. And this leads us then to the second path factor, 
which is right or wise intention, sometimes also translated as right resolve or right thought. And again, just to name that this phrase right thought can sound quite oppressive in English, even Orwellian, think like this or the thought police will come to get you. So we need to be clear about what's meant here. And in the suttas, the Buddha described how before he attained Nibbana, he went through a process of paying very careful attention to his thoughts. And he saw clearly that certain types of thinking led to suffering for himself, for others, while other types of thinking led to ease, to happiness and freedom. So he says, practitioners, before my awakening, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, it occurred to me, suppose that I divide my thoughts into two classes. Then I set on one side thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of cruelty. And I set on the other side thoughts of renunciation, thoughts of non-ill will, and thoughts of non-cruelty. As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of sensual desire arose in me. I understood thus. This thought of sensual desire has arisen in me. This leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, and to the affliction of both. It obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties, and leads away from Nibbana. When I considered this leads to my own affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to others' affliction, it subsided in me. When I considered this leads to the affliction of both, it subsided in me. When I considered this obstructs wisdom, causes difficulties and leads away from Nibbana, it subsided in me. And then he goes through the same sequence, this time in relation to ill will and to cruelty. And then he goes through the opposites in relation to renunciation, kindness and compassion. So with this path factor of right intention, the Buddha is asking us to develop three specific types of intention or thought. The intention of renunciation as an antidote to sensual desire. The intention of goodwill or metta as an antidote to ill will or aversion. And the intention of harmlessness, sometimes translated here as compassion, as an antidote to cruelty. So metta and compassion are aspects of right intention. But I'm not going to say too much about them tonight because we don't have a lot of time left and I have given quite a few talks uh, here and in other settings on metta and compassion and there are lots of talks on them on Dharma Seed. So with the time that we have left, left, I'd like to focus instead on the first aspect of right intention, which is the intention towards renunciation. So again... <laughs> 
that there are some quite negative connotations with this English translation of the Pali word nekama as renunciation. So just to check, how many of you, when you hear the word renunciation, think, oh good, that sounds appealing? <laughs> no. Renunciation in English, here are a few definitions. Abandoning, repudiating, sacrificing, giving up, resignation, abdication, surrender, foregoing, abstention, going without, doing without, eschewal of and rejection. <laughs> Not exactly uplifting. But in the discourses, almost every time the Buddha referred to renunciation, he talked about it as the bliss of renunciation. The bliss of renunciation. Which are not generally two words that we would think of as going together. In fact, they might even sound like a contradiction in terms. So it's worth exploring how might renunciation be experienced as blissful. So Joseph Goldstein, some of you know, has reframed renunciation as non-addiction which at least points, I think, to the freedom that comes when we're not dependent on external circumstances, not dependent on sense pleasures for our happiness. And you might play with this in your daily life. If you remember, next time there's something that you really want, instead of focusing all your energy on trying to get that thing, whatever it is, See if you can turn your attention the other way and notice what that wanting feels like in the body, in the heart-mind. If your experience is anything like mine, it's pretty uncomfortable. In the body, there's that basic energy of agitation, maybe restlessness, perhaps a feeling of being pulled towards what you want or pushed towards it. And in the mind, too, there are often feelings of frustration or discontent, dissatisfaction, perhaps lust or jealousy or at times a kind of an obsession. All of those are pretty unpleasant. So one of the unexpected benefits of the COVID-19 situation for quite a few people that I've talked to is that many of us have been pushed into less consumption than usual and quite a few people and true in my own experience too have started to appreciate the ease that comes from not being able to automatically fulfill every passing whim or desire there's a simplicity in just accepting what we already have and not only accepting it but actually appreciating the abundance that most of us have instead of fixating on what we lack. But again, because of the mind's inherent negativity bias, we tend to focus on what's unpleasant or painful. So just for a moment, see if you can bring to mind a time when you didn't automatically give in to something that you wanted, maybe in the last few weeks. See if you can find a situation where you could have made a choice to go after something and you chose not to. 
if you can think of a situation like that, what was it like to just let that desire go? And as you recall it now, is there perhaps a subtle sense of relief or ease or spaciousness? If so, you might just let that in as a tiny taste of the bliss of renunciation. And as we develop the taste for this kind of ease, we understand that renunciation is not some kind of self-punishment for being greedy. It actually develops naturally from right view, from understanding our relationship to sense-desire and understanding that sense-desires can never be completely satisfied. So Bhikkhu Bodhi says, real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things that are still inwardly cherished but it's of changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. When we understand the nature of desire, when we investigate it closely with keen attention, desire falls away by itself without the need for struggle. So when we practice renunciation in this way, it deepens wisdom, and that deeper wisdom strengthens the renunciation. And like all of the path factors, that wisdom has benefits not only for we ourselves, but everyone around us. And specifically in terms of consumption, reducing our consumption has benefits for the planet. So in all of this, there's an altruistic aspect to developing these path factors. And I'd like to close with a quote from Gil Fronstel, who highlights this relational aspect of the path. He says, we don't just walk the eightfold path for ourselves. Sometimes people assume that in bringing attention to our suffering, the Noble Eightfold Path leads only to self-concern. But the renunciation, goodwill and compassion of right intention establish a path of practice within the context of our interpersonal relationships and a concern for the welfare of others is integral to walking this Eightfold Path. So thank you for your kind attention. May our efforts to explore this path bring benefit to ourselves and to all living beings. May we know peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.